Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 75, and this is God's holy word for us today. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You've said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Will you pray with me? Lord, we see ourselves in a bloodthirsty mob. And we see ourselves in a cowardly, denying disciple. Let us find ourselves in a gracious, perfect Savior covered by his grace. Teach us in your word today. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. You guys can be seated. It's probably in the early morning hours, just after midnight of Friday, the very day that Jesus will be crucified. Judas has betrayed. The disciples have fled. The religious are out for blood. And in all of this, the Savior of the world is completely in control. Nothing is happening here, friends, that Jesus is not intentionally going through in order to get to the cross so that he can die for our sins. So let's get ready to find four points, not three, not five, four points this morning that we'll, we'll find as we continue walking with Jesus Christ to the cross. 
First point, we're just jumping right in, okay? No time for introductions. Love biblical justice. Point number one, love biblical justice. Look at verse uh, 57 to 61. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, again, you must remember this. I, I feel like Dickens going, the Marleys were dead to begin with. This you must know, or everything that follows will not be wonderful, right? You must remember, Jesus was accomplishing the will of God. Jesus walked intentionally to Jerusalem. Jesus allowed Judas to go get the soldiers and bring them to arrest him. Jesus refused to run away and hide from his arrest. Jesus was going to the cross and nobody could stop him. If you miss those truths, you will get so caught up at the injustice done to Jesus right here that you'll make Jesus out to be a tragic victim of people who were somehow getting the better of him. Nobody Absolutely nobody got the better of Jesus. Well, Matthew picks up the story for us, and he tells us that the Jews led Jesus to Caiaphas for trial. Now, if you know the order of events, this is actually the second hearing that Matthew's going to tell us about for Jesus that night. In John chapter 18, we find out that Jesus first went to the home of Annas, Caiaphas' father-in-law. It was kind of an arraignment sort of hearing that happened there because Annas was trying to question Jesus to see if he could find a charge to bring against Jesus. That's what John tells us. Now, yes, stop and listen to that for a second because I don't think you got it. The person overseeing the first hearing of Jesus does not have a charge to bring against Jesus. How does that sound to you? We're going to send you to court and have you talk until you say something and we can decide it's criminal. Annas just wants Jesus to talk. And maybe if Jesus talks the right way, he can come up with a charge to lay against Jesus. That ain't how justice works. Well, Annas comes up empty if you read the John 18 passage. We don't have time to do it today. You find out Annas fails. And so he ends up sending Jesus to Caiaphas for a second trial, a trial, again, that should never happen with no established charge to start with. Well, the home of Caiaphas had a place large enough for the Jewish Sanhedrin to meet. The Sanhedrin was a council of 70 teachers plus the Jewish high priest, 71, and they were to be fully committed to the law of God. And these men were to see to it that justice, justice as defined by the law of God, was done. That was their job. And the trials that Jesus goes through, both the one before Annas and this one before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, they are full of illegalities and improprieties as according to the Jewish law in the Mishnah, their regulations for the Sanhedrin. They violated tons of their own rules. Well, what are some examples, you ask? It was inappropriate, illegal, according to their, their rules, for the trial to happen at night. It's just after midnight. 
The trial should not have been in a private residence. It had to be held in a public place. It's at Caiaphas' house. A specific charge must be brought against the accused at the beginning. Otherwise, you're not having a trial. No charge was brought against Jesus. No violence is to be done to a person before the trial is ended and a verdict pronounced. Violence was done to Jesus at the beginning of, during the trial with Annas, and it was done at the end of this second trial before Caiaphas, even before the sentence could be pronounced. Witnesses for the accused are to be a priority in a trial like this. No witnesses were allowed to come and speak for Jesus. Nobody looked for witnesses to speak for Jesus. Get this one. No trial seeking the death penalty is to be carried out in less than three days. And that was to include a day for the judges to fast between the giving of the verdict and the sentencing, and they were to have an opportunity to change their vote to not guilty at any point during that time. By the way, because of that rule for fasting, legally no trial to try Jesus could have happened at the beginning of the Jewish feast because the Jews had to eat the Passover. They were violating all of their, their standards. I could go on and on. There's more. These men violate their standards so that they can put on a mockery of a trial. But you know, if we could get one of them and ask him, they might tell us, because this happens in a lot of cultures, right? Well, a desperate, dangerous time and a trial of a desperate, dangerous criminal like Jesus, that sometimes requires us to set aside our standards. After all, they might, they might look at you and say, well, the mission is not the law of God. Few of them would have said that, but maybe they could have argued that, right? Hey, this is special circumstances. So I actually don't want you to spend all of your thought here trying to think of, oh my goodness, I cannot believe all the rules that the Jews violated, that the Sanhedrin violated here. So instead, I want you to ask yourself a far more important question, a bigger question. Did these men violate the law of God? You see, justice is God's business, right? God has the right to tell us what is required for justice to be carried out. God has principles in his word that he demands be followed regardless of how big you think the emergency is. I will read to you again the text that Eric read for us this morning in Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21. Listen to this. Just this is enough. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. Watch this. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him 
as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So let's just take in our minds the concept of a false witness. The need for proof in a trial. Matthew makes it clear that the people accusing Jesus were looking for, you can see it in the word of God, looking for false witnesses. And the funny thing is, they couldn't even find two witnesses to agree about any sort of crime Jesus had committed. And that concept alone should have ended this hearing before it started. Deuteronomy, by the way, is absolutely clear. You cannot put a person to death without a pair of witnesses. You need two witnesses. You need two separate sources of evidence against the accused. And those witnesses, those sources, those streams of evidence, they are to be questioned rigorously so that no matter what, an innocent man must not be convicted. You see God leaning toward acquittal, naturally, right? That's biblical. Now, God speaks very harshly in the word of God against condemning somebody without a proper trial and a proper defense and proper witnesses. God commands the judges, again, rigorously question, diligently question witnesses so that you can be sure that the accused gets the best defense possible. And God speaks incredibly harshly. Did you not think that felt a little harsh against the false witnesses? You don't want to be a false witness in the Bible. You don't want to be a false witness before God. They said that a person who falsely accuses another person, justice is that that person face the penalty that would have been carried out on the other person if the accused were guilty. And that is the First, this, this, this is not the first, that is an early use here in Deuteronomy of where we get the phrase, an eye for an eye. It happens other places and in other circumstances, but here, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The, the concept of lex talionis is here given for if you even accuse and try to get somebody convicted of something they didn't do and you are maliciously false, justice is that you get what you were going to give them. Y'all, this is a big deal. How big a deal do you think it is to God that we not bear false witness against people? Where, where, where do you hear, thou shalt not bear false witness? Not just in the Old Testament, but where? The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, right? Several other places, for sure, but in the Ten Commandments. Guys, not bearing false witness against another person, not accusing someone without evidence and witnesses, all that stuff, not accusing someone falsely, it made God's top ten list of how to love God and love neighbor. Do you guys see that just with that fact alone, evil injustice is being done against Jesus here? You see that? Does it make you mad a little bit? Let's make you bothered a little bit. If it does, let's learn from it. Let's learn, friends, to love biblical justice. We need to love biblical justice even if the people around us don't care. 
hate injustice. Let the standards that are taught in the word of God become your standards for justice, which means you don't accept that somebody's guilty without evidence. You don't punish somebody for a crime that somebody else committed. On and on and on we go. Our culture uses the word just and justice in horribly unbiblical ways today. We must let the word of God be our standard for justice. And yes, the word of God from Old Testament to New Testament is the word of God teaching us about justice. Amen? Amen. Stick with that, okay? We see here that Jesus has been questioned. Nobody was allowed to stand as witness for the defense. The religious leaders went through false witness after false witness until they came up with a pair, and they only come close to agreeing. They don't agree perfectly. And their accusation against Jesus is a claim that Jesus, get this, said, I am going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's the crime. In John chapter 2, Jesus says the words that probably come closest to what the people are accusing Jesus of saying. And you know when it happened? Three years earlier. And by the way, it happened completely in public. Listen to John 2, 18 through 22. This is after the first time Jesus cleansed the temple. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? This is a public discussion. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? John then adds, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. So, yeah. Jesus said something sort of like what these guys were saying. But Jesus never threatened anything. Jesus did not say, I'm going to destroy the temple and build it back up. No, all Jesus said was, you destroy this temple, I'll build it up. You destroy this body, Jesus is saying, if you kill me, I will come back from the dead in three days. He just happened to use the metaphor of a temple to say what he was saying. And here's the thing, you might imagine... Do you think that that really sounds like something you're going to put somebody to death for? No, 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 no. That doesn't even make sense. That's not going to give the religious leaders even a charge they can file against Jesus. So the unjust Caiaphas, he's going to press forward. We're going to find that in what we would call point number two. We'll learn one more thing here. Point number two, worship Jesus the Christ. Worship Jesus the Christ. Look at 62 and 63. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now guys, Caiaphas might have been evil. But as far as political maneuvering goes, he's no dummy. He could see that the only thing like an agreement from the witnesses he had at this mockery of a trial was nowhere near close enough to get a conviction. And Caiaphas is frustrated. So he stands up and accosts Jesus himself, which, by the way, according to the rules, should not happen. I mean, again, can you imagine a courtroom where the judge stands up and starts questioning people instead of the prosecution of the defense? Right? Should not have happened according to the rules. 
But again, we, I think we've established pretty well that the rules are not super important to this group that's become a bloodthirsty mob. So Caiaphas tries to get Jesus to wade into the conversation about the temple that the two false witnesses brought up. Jesus is not even going to speak. By the way, what do you think happens if Jesus speaks here? If Jesus spoke in his own defense here, he could have made it absolutely clear that he was speaking figuratively of his own body as a temple, and in doing so, the accusations that were against him would have fallen apart even more. But remember this, Jesus was not in the least bit interested in escaping what was about to happen. So Caiaphas basically puts Jesus under oath, I adjure you. And he demands Jesus speak to the big issue, tell us, if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, what Jesus says here is vital. How Jesus will testify, even if he doesn't legally have to testify, is tremendously important to you and me. We need to know what Jesus claims to be true of himself. Verse 64. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus answers in the affirmative, doesn't he? You said so. Very similar to the way Jesus answered Judas when Judas said, am I going to betray you? You said it. Your own words have declared truth, Caiaphas. It's basically what he's saying. But listen, in fact, if you're a Bible page turner, you can turn to this one because your eyes might need to see this one. It's the parallel in Mark. Mark 14, verse 62 is what I'm going to read to you. Mark 14, 62. I don't often make us go to the parallels because I love when I preach a passage from the Gospels to let the individual Gospel evangelist tell us his story. There's words I just, I gotta have you here. Mark 14, 62. Have you found it? Okay. And Jesus said, do you see what Jesus says first? I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. You can flip back to Matthew now. Jesus says, I am. Does that ring any bells for you? That is, I believe, now you could somewhat argue against this, and I, I understand their position, but I really do believe that this is Jesus more than saying, yep, I'm the Christ. I am. The I am used here, I would argue, indicates Jesus' claim to the very name of God. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh. Jesus added a claim to deity to the high priest question of being the Christ or the Son of God. And this explains, I think, how quickly the Jews condemned Jesus for his answer. But even if you don't buy that, which I think you should, Jesus points to a couple of Old Testament passages that indicate to Caiaphas, Jesus knows he is more than your ordinary average guy. Psalm 110 verse 1 reads, The Lord says to my Lord, listen to this, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus said, You'll see me where? Seated at the right hand of God. 
Daniel 7, 13 and 14 reads, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Listen to what it says about him. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, Caiaphas says, he demands Jesus tell him, are you the Christ? Are you the promised anointed king from God? Jesus says he is. And Jesus claims the name of God. And Jesus claims that he's going to sit on the throne of God. And Jesus claims that he's going to be the one coming on the clouds and establishing his rule, his kingdom forever. Now, friends, you can wrestle with every one of those claims individually, and it will be heavy and worth a lot. But put those together. Feel the significance. Jesus said, I am. Jesus agreed that, yes, he is the Messiah. Jesus claimed the right to sit on the throne over the entire universe. Jesus claimed to be the ultimate judge and king. When Jesus cites Daniel 7 the way that he does, Jesus claims that he is not the father even though he also already claimed the right to be called Yahweh. Guess what, friends? That's a hint of the Trinity right here. And Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be God the Son. Jesus is telling him, I'm God. Now, before we see how the Jews responded in the trial, you and I have a very important question to answer. How will you respond to Jesus' claims? Is he God or not? Is he Messiah or not? Is he Savior or not? Is he judge or not? And careful, I'm not telling you that I want you to decide whether you like this idea. I'm telling you Jesus made this Claim It's out there. It's either fact or fiction. If it's fact, you and I have an obligation. If it's fiction, we have the opposite obligation. Hearing this claim from Jesus, tell you what, you cannot stand on neutral ground, though, can you? You can't say, man, Jesus is a good person like all the other religious leaders out there. No, you cannot think of Jesus as one among many. If Jesus is God, he's God. He's it. No other choice. If he is not God, then he is a despicable liar or an utterly insane fool. Well, what have we seen in the gospel according to Matthew? Chapter 1, Jesus is born with the family tree, the pedigree of the Messiah. Chapter 1, Jesus is miraculously born of a virgin, the son of the living God. Throughout the book, Jesus lives in obedience to the law in a way that is clearer and stronger than any human being in the world ever has or ever will. Jesus taught in a clearer and stronger, more authoritative way the word of God than any human being ever has before or since. Jesus performed miracles that went beyond the ability of any ordinary human being. And if you skip to the end of the book, you will see that Jesus will die and then rise from the grave, defeating death in a way that no person ever has before or since. 
Jesus claims to be the Messiah, judge, king, and God. His words prove it to be true. His actions prove it to be true. His repeated fulfillment of scriptural prophecy proves it to be true. And if it is true, friends, there is only one proper response for you and one proper response for me, and that is that we worship Jesus the Christ. Friends, we have been created by God. Every one of you has tremendous worth as being created by the power and in the image of God. And we owe God our very selves every bit. And every one of us has rebelled against that God in one way or another. We have been angry God haters and we have been foolish, bad choice makers and everything in between. And Jesus came to be the savior of a people for God. And to worship Jesus rightly means that you first must place your entire faith for your entire eternity in Jesus and in Jesus' finished work. You reject your sin. You let go of thinking you get to be the master of your life. You bow to Jesus as the king. You submit to Jesus as the master. And you ask Jesus, please, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin and be my savior. And every person who comes to the Lord Jesus in faith and repentance will be saved. So I urge you, as your first act of worship, come to Jesus to be saved. And for those who know Jesus, the right response is worship. Do things that show that you believe Jesus is your king and your God. That's what worship really is. So sing, so pray, praise, celebrate, repent, fellowship, obey. Do everything you do to the glory of God. Jesus is the Messiah. But I think we already know, don't we, that the religious of his day were blind to that fact. We're going to see them. We're going to see their failure in the next point. Point number three. Still with me? Worship Jesus, the suffering servant. Worship Jesus, the suffering servant. 65 through 68 reads, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Well, once Jesus made plain his claim to be the Christ, the Son of God, Caiaphas believed he had what he wanted. The corrupt priest tore his robes, indicating by that, I am horrified by what I've just heard. Funny that, since I bet you Caiaphas was delighted. Caiaphas pronounces his own verdict. Jesus had uttered blasphemy. Now, in simple terms, blasphemy is to speak something that is greatly insulting to God. To disrespect God in the highest possible degree, that's blasphemy. And friends, I'll be honest about one thing. If somebody who is not God claims to be God, that is blasphemy, right? If you saw me standing up here and telling you that I am the incarnation of the creator of the universe, what would you say? Yeah, thank you, no. (laughs) You would probably say things like, you know, there's several things you lack. (laughs) You could probably come up with three or four 
real quick. If someone claims to be God and who's not God, that is a, that's blasphemy. And Caiaphas is saying that Jesus did claim to be God and he's saying Jesus' claim is false. So that's, that's Caiaphas' accusation. But then Caiaphas, he pronounces Jesus as guilty and then he demands that the Sanhedrin who heard Jesus' words with their own ears also render a verdict. This is a violation of procedure. It cannot be done this way according to the Mishnah. And the Sanhedrin plays right along perfectly. They pronounce Jesus not only guilty, but they pronounce what his sentence ought to be, which is also an injustice according to the Mishnah. And then this erudite, noble, dignified, distinguished gathering of religious leaders in their nice robes devolves into a snarling, evil, violent, brutish mob. They begin to physically abuse Jesus. They spit in Jesus' face, which is among the highest insults that culture had to offer. They were violent. One of the words there indicates that they punched Jesus with closed fists. By the way, be careful, friends, when you hear about that, and we don't, we don't react harshly or, or with a, a strong reaction to someone getting hit with a closed fist, but it's because we've watched way too many movies where guys will take punches to the face for like 22 minutes and be fine. <laughs> People die from that in the real world. They punch Jesus in the face. But then Luke tells us, or Mark, one of the two, tells us that they blindfolded him or covered his face, the other one says. And they slapped him. And they mockingly demand, oh, identify who it is that hit you with your great supernatural knowledge. But don't be surprised by this. God promised 700 years before this, almost 800 years before this, that his chosen one, the promised Messiah, would be a suffering servant. Isaiah 50, verses 5 through 7, listen to this. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Or 52 verse 14 just says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He would be beaten beyond recognition. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is the Jesus who would not answer. Jesus, the only perfect man, the only truly noble man, the only actually good man of human history was attacked brutalized and mocked by wicked men. And in going through this horror, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that God had already given, a prediction that the Savior would suffer. Let it break your heart. But also, let it make you love Jesus. He set his face firmly toward the cross. And he knew what it would take for him to get there. 
And he knew what he would have to walk through. And he willingly took the worst humanity had to offer in order to do what was necessary to save people like you and me from our sins. So worship Jesus, the suffering servant. Fourth point, last point. Humble yourself before God humbles you. Humble yourself before God humbles you. Listen to the rest of the chapter, 69 and following. Now, Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the men. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of, the, of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So meanwhile, while the Sanhedrin is participating in a mockery of justice in a kangaroo court, Matthew shifts the scene to the apostle Peter. You remember, don't you, that Peter declared earlier that evening, Jesus, I will never betray you. I will never leave you. I will never run away. Jesus told Peter, man, before the end of the night, you're going to deny knowing me three times. Of course, Peter, the bold, courageous disciple, no, Jesus, no way that's happening to me. Maybe these other idiots, but not me. Well, in the garden, Jesus looked at Peter and he warned him. He said, man, you need to be praying. You're not as strong as you think you are. Your spirit's willing. Your flesh is weak. You need to pray. And I do think that it's possible that the self-confidence, the, the little bit of arrogance here on Peter's part leads to a very painful fall. Peter gets into the courtyard of the home of the high priest. I guess I, guess I should say the high priests, right? Because it was Caiaphas and Annas who seemed to be sharing this big mansion. You know, you could live in different little parts and they would all... Uh, the homes that were inside the little area would share a courtyard. And you get in through a large guarded gate that pretty much ran through the width of the house to get you to the courtyard in the middle. In the book of John, we find out that John the Apostle is the one who got Peter into the courtyard because somehow John had connections, though we don't have any idea what John did that night. Peter goes inside. There's a nice little campfire in the courtyard to keep warm because it's a chilly night. And Peter goes and stands next to the guards. The Roman soldiers are probably gone, but the temple police are hanging around and they're standing by the fire and they're talking and they're keeping warm and they're just looking to see what's going to happen next. And there's Peter. He's watching. I can't imagine what's going through his head. He's trying to get a glimpse of where Jesus has gone and what's going on. And a servant girl. This is a young girl. This is not a big girl. This is not some big, tough American gladiator woman there. This is just a servant girl. She comes up to, to the group, and she looks at Peter, and she brings a dangerous accusation. She points out that Peter was with Jesus. And friends, right here is a moment of truth. Don't you hear it? Don't you hear that? The great music swelling as Peter is going to get bold, right? Here, Peter can stand with Jesus. Here, Peter cannot deny Jesus. Here, Peter plays dumb. I, 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 don't, I don't know what you're talking about. 
Now, by the way, there would have been a lot more conversation that would have happened around here. That's why you can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You get slightly different recordings here. But without question, Peter here turns away from one chance to stand for Jesus. And what Peter does is he extricates himself from a very unpleasant conversation. Have you ever just loved it when you realize this conversation makes me uncomfortable and I'm just going to go over there now? That's what Peter does. He goes, he goes near the gate. The gate would have probably been a lot more shadowed. There would have been less light. He could get away a little quicker, maybe. And here, a second young servant girl comes up to Peter, and she makes another very similar accusation, but this time she includes everybody around here. Hey, guys, this is bad. Peter, Peter, is, he, he was with Jesus. And this time, Peter, for his part, flatly denies knowing Jesus. And he denies knowing Jesus. Do you see that with an oath? Swear to God, I don't know him. That's what it would have sounded like. I swear by God, I do not know that man. Time passes, trials go on, beatings commence. Spitting, slapping. And other people around Peter renew the accusation that the servant girl made because they've heard Peter talk. And Peter has an accent. It's the accent of somebody from Galilee. Peter stands out like a man from Alabama in the state of New York. No, I'm not judging anybody. I, I, I grew up in a very southern context. My, when people talk back where I'm from, it sounds like this all the time. Travis, it's, it's an extra syllable that's in my name. So if I talk the way that I grew up talking, and everybody else sounds like someone from England, you're going to know I'm different. And they say to Peter, your drawl is giving you away as somebody who would hang out with him. He's from the country too. And now Peter goes as far as is possible in his denying of knowing Jesus. Then he began, do you see that? He in, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Do you hear that, friends? Peter cursed himself. This is Peter saying, may God kill me and send me to hell if I'm lying. I don't know that man. If you want to put it modern, Peter looked up and said, I'll be damned if I know that man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Luke tells us that it was at that very moment Jesus turned and looked right at Peter. Jesus, bloody, beaten, battered, looked Peter right in the eye from whatever distance. I don't know. Maybe it was through a window. Maybe Jesus was being walked across the courtyard again by the soldiers. I don't know. But Peter has a line of sight to Peter through his bloodied, swollen face. And at this precise moment, Jesus looks at Peter and Peter knows Jesus knows. 
And Peter remembers what Jesus said about what was going to happen. And Peter was cut to the heart. He saw his sin in all its ugliness. And Peter got out that gate and ran out into the night. And Peter wept bitterly. And our scene fades. But even as our scene fades, you and I must recognize ourselves in Peter. How many times have you been too confident in your own goodness, your own ability, your own, oh, I know I'll do it right? You ever think, oh, I got this? That's why I suggest that the point here could be, could be humble yourself before God humbles you. You see, God will humble us all. When we stand before God, we're going to see that we bring nothing of value to the table. It's not that God doesn't love us, but we cannot impress Him. We have never earned a good thing from God. Our relationship with God is solely based on God's grace. If we get good from God, it is good we didn't earn And if you recognize this, it'll keep you from thinking of yourself too highly. It'll humble you. And God can treat you graciously because the Bible tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let me also call us to this. Let's remember, let's let's recognize the hint, just the beginnings of repentance that we see in Peter. Peter wept. Peter saw his sin. He hurt because of his sin. Peter mourned over his sin. Later, after Jesus is resurrected, Jesus is going to come to Peter and he's going to restore Peter. And after that, we're going to find that Peter becomes one of the boldest witnesses for Jesus in history. Peter turns from his sin toward righteousness. Find grace in Jesus. That's what Peter did. Turn from sin. That's what Peter did. Live to obey and glorify Jesus. That is what he did. That, friends, is repentance. See your sin, feel sorrow over your sin, turn away from your sin and toward righteousness. That's what repentance means. Now, is Peter going to be perfect after this? Not so much. Right, He's got some issues still. But Peter is forgiven. Peter is under the grace of God. And Peter will be useful to the Savior. So if you're not yet a believer here this morning, or maybe you are a believer who is living in sin, I urge you, repent of your sin just like Peter. Feel the pain of sinning against Jesus. Know that he knows. You don't have to see Jesus look at you across a courtyard to know he knows you inside and out. He knows you deep down. But he offers you grace. So learn, yes, to hate your sin. Weep over your sin. Then turn to Jesus, believe in Jesus, and ask Jesus, oh Jesus, have mercy on me. And then, then once you've done that, all of us together, let's live together to magnify the glorious Savior, who is God the Son, who went through horror and who did it all to glorify his Father and to save our very soul. Let's pray together. Jesus, 
Thank you. I don't know that there's anything more right we can say. Thank you. Thank you for suffering for our sin. Thank you for receiving an injustice to prevent us from having to receive full justice. Help us to love you, to worship you, to love justice, to love the word of God, to turn from sin and repent, to be humble because of the gospel. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that they will come to know you, that they will let go of self and run to Jesus for grace. For all of us, help us follow you more and love you better. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.